Welcome to Well Connected with Dr. Joe Kavidar, a podcast series from Partners Connected Health. I'm your host, Joe Kavidar. Join me for interesting and thought-provoking conversations with the leaders, disruptors, and innovators who are redefining the future of technology-enabled health and wellness. We have a unique and exciting opportunity as we focus on the upcoming 2019 Connected Health Conference here in Boston. Partners Connected Health is honored to be the organizing partner for this world-class event, and I'm proud to serve as program chair. For this season of Well Connected, we're excited to bring you a special collection of episodes highlighting this year's keynote speakers. Each episode will not only feature a stimulating conversation with a noted thought leader, but will provide a sneak preview into their up and coming keynote presentation as well. Our guest on the podcast today is Chris Dancy, health and wellness pioneer, entrepreneur, life hacker, and health technology leader. Chris is often referred to as the world's most connected human, although he prefers to be known as a mindful cyborg. Can't wait to talk more about that. For over a decade, Chris tracked, cataloged, and analyzed his life, utilizing more than 700 sensors, devices, applications, and services. This self-quantification, which he shares publicly, has allowed him to optimize his productivity, physical and behavioral health, as well as his spiritual well-being. Since the 1990s, he was responsible for platform and technical development for the internet startup of WebMD, no longer a startup. He helped launch a number of successful startups in the technology and healthcare industries. He also served in digital product development, senior management, and leadership roles. More recently, he was the founder and CEO of Compassware, a B2B software company that delivers digital therapy platform for population health managers. Chris is the author of Don't Unplug, How Technology Saved My Life and Can Save Yours Too. And he has a new book coming out this fall, Time Machine in Your Pocket, Save Your Sanity by Using Your Devices More. He's been featured on Showtime's Darknet, the cover of Business Week, and interviewed by the Wall Street Journal, NPR, the BBC, Fox News, and Wired. He has also consulted for Coke, Google, Starbucks, Air New Zealand, Nike, and Microsoft, among many, many others. As a keynote speaker at the 2019 Connected Health Conference here in Boston, October 16th through the 18th, I'm sure he will have much to say about our theme, Designing for Healthy Habits and Better Outcomes. Chris, thanks so much for being our guest on Well Connected today. Thank you. I have to be honest with you, that was, <laughs> I, I was listening to your intro of me and I was like, yeah, that, uh, he's talking about me. <laughs> you forget, you know, time goes by, you're like, did that do all that? Oh, yeah, I guess I did. Okay. Yeah, my line for that is uh, uh, after hearing that intro, I'm excited to hear what I have to say. So yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sure that we all are excited to hear what you have to say. Cool. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, back about seven years ago is when you started to notice that your doctor was having a hard time keeping up with your health records. And you also started to look for ways to gather data without having to write things down. You've said that being connected allows you to be more aware of how you respond to life, adjust to your environment, and inform better habits. 
you lost 100 pounds and even learned to meditate. Can you share with us your personal journey, how you got started, what you learned, and the challenges you faced to becoming the world's most connected human? Yeah, that's a, <clears throat> that's a big ask. So <laughs> I think technically it started a little bit longer than that. So it's probably about 2003 when I really hit rock bottom. I had uh, uh, been jailed for a DUI. Um, I had just had all sorts of health challenges uh, in the hospital constantly for panic attacks and all sorts of other illicit uh, inappropriate behaviors. And at the time, I remember going in to see my doctor um, who recently passed away. uh, his name is Dr. Alfred, um, and, and and saying to him, hey, you know, listen, I've, I've obviously got some challenges here. Uh, we've got, you know, I know it's you keep telling me to diet and cut out all the, the bad behavior, but there mu- you must know something. There must be another pill. There must be a test. There must be something. I mean, what's wrong with me? And I remember him at that point, we'd been, I'd been his patient for, I don't know, 10 years at that point. It was in my uh, early 30s. Uh, thinking to myself, how does he he's got stacks of papers and test results and he doesn't have one answer that i couldn't you know think of myself or listen got got from my mother that really started this this unrolling or unpacking of how i thought about myself and my relationship to all sorts of information systems people books computers you know it's really not all we weren't really talking about the internet by at, at that point like we are nowadays by 2008, you know, I'd ballooned up. I'd been almost uh, 120 pounds overweight at that point. I was my chain smoking and, you know, like two and a half packs of cigarettes a day, Marble Light 100s. That was my jam. Um, <laughs> and uh, also just, you know, ridiculous amounts of rage. I mean, anything would send me into a spin. Um, I'd also, by 2008, I'd been on antidepressants since I was 18, so 22 years. I turned 40, I'd been on antidepressants my entire adult life. Um, it was it was just just coming unglued, but if you were to look at me through social media or anything else back then, I was fine. <laughs> I was fine. I look like most Americans, all Americans now practically, um, and I was, you know, my job loved me, and my job always came to my rescue when I had like a problem, a health problem or a behavior problem. They always kind of protected me because you, if you do good work and you're valuable to the company, they keep keep you going. But I knew it was not sustainable. My father had adult onset diabetes in his 40s. My brother had had it. My grandmother had it. His father had had it. I mean, it literally was like knocking on the door. And I jumped on my computer and I went to go search for something on Google like we all do in 2008. And I couldn't find it. So I looked at my history and then browsing through my browser history, I realized my computer had like a really accurate record of everything I was thinking about. Everything. Even like silly things I'd forgotten that were I was thinking about. So it dawned on me, why do why does my browser have such a ridiculously good record of how I behave and I can't recall it from moment to moment? So that really started this process of how do I systematize? How do I touch everything in my life, whether it's a, a laptop or a computer or a phone or some headphones or a TV, anything with a digital signal and extract from it what I'm doing. Companies do this all the time nowadays. It's why there's a data debate. And slowly between 2008 and 2012, I built this massive system that would grab data, move it into a repository 
And for me, the repository had to be something not only I understood as a quote unquote patient, but a provider or a friend or uh, a clergy member, something anyone would understand my life if they were to look at it and be able to see that much information. And the only thing I could think of at the time was a calendar. Because calendars were online, they were easily understood by most people, you know, they had a, 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 a historical function, but they also had like a future function, right? So if I had a bunch of entries in a calendar that showed a certain bit of behavior and I had something scheduled coming up, I could start to see, oh, that's not going to work. <laughs> we all do this in our heads when we think about a couple of nights of bad sleep and a big meeting. So <clears throat> it really was... I think in that moment in 2012, when I had about four years worth of information, and, and I was just, this is just a side project. I mean, I'm not telling anyone I'm doing. I work for IT companies at this point, right? That I started turning on some of the feedback loops to take information that I would flag as potentially not healthy, like binge watching television or avoiding the bathroom hours on end to stay in meetings so I look like I was more attentive and send myself little warnings from my phone just saying, hey, get up and go to the bathroom. This happens frequently today with Apple Watch when it says stand up and other things. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I turned it on and slowly but surely, everything started coming unbundled. All the bad behavior started coming unbundled. And by 2014, I was all the antidepressants after t- almost 25 years at that point. I had quit smoking. I was down 70 pounds at that point. Uh, just everything. I was unrecognizable physically and mentally to a lot of people in my life. Um, And shortly thereafter, I kind of got heralded as like the world's most connected person uh, in the business week and all of that kind of stuff. So I'm just going to take a break right there. (laughs) So before we kind of move into like, well, what happened after? Uh, Because I think there's a lot of things to unpack if there's anything in particular you'd want to jump into. One of the things that we've uh, tried to drive in the last few years about th- these technologies is the concept of feedback loops and then what I call a motivational overlay. Um, and in the beginning, for me, uh, back in about the same time, 08 or so, when I started, I think I got my first Fitbit and I, we, were, we were playing with, uh, with trackers of various sorts in the lab. and it. I just thought, wow, now that we can easily track stuff and use create a feedback loop, we're going to revolutionize care because who doesn't want that feedback loop? Well, it turns out most of our patients don't really care. Yeah. And that's because they don't have that motivational overlay. So I think one of the things that's interesting about your story is that you, at some point, became motivated to respond to the feedback loops intrinsically. And that's driven, I would argue, a lot of your success. Yeah, and the motivation, there was almost a meta level of feedback. It's like, uh, you know, I started realizing that the feedback was successful, so I believed in it, which then created almost this emotional layer to the feedback loops. Mm-hmm. Um, I also started doing something I'm not proud of, which I see happening a lot of days, which is weaponizing my own feedback loops. So, you know, basically taking a screenshot of some unhealthy behavior that I was participating in and then saying, look what you made me do Mm. to the person who was with me. Oh, Um, wow. Yeah. And this is, you know, we see this this type of weaponized data collection today. You know, it's pervasive amongst peers and friends and a lot of other things just because it's the easiest way to say it's your fault. Yeah. Right. Uh, There's no co-creation in data when people, you know, think they have no co-create, but when it's good, it's all there, it's all alone. 
Um, so I was very, very careful uh, once I noticed that. But that kind of takes us into the second part, which is, you know, by 2014, 2015, I had moved into healthcare, back into healthcare. I'd started there in the 90s. And I was working on population systems for a big uh, population health company called Healthways. And I went there with the best of intentions. I believed, uh, you know, Jeff Arnold from ShareCare had been involved with them early at that point. Uh, I believed in my heart that I could take what I learned about low friction data collection, like you mentioned, like you just wear a Fitbit, you don't think about it, and add the ambient feedback layer, which is, it could be a message, it could be something environmental, it could be sending a message to someone else who then intervenes on the habits behalf, right? And I felt that it was going to work out well and we could revolutionize kind of, you know, populations. What I didn't anticipate at that point were two things. One, I became spiritually and emotionally and physically bankrupt. I had, you know, lost a lot of weight. I'd become very successful. I was paid super well. I literally could was flying around the world doing news interviews and speaking on stages in front of, you know, tens of thousands of people. But I didn't recognize myself. And it's not that I changed so fast because it was a good five-year plateau to get to that point, but I, my behaviors had become almost enemies of themselves. So anything I did that would kind of create a feeling of stability, like maybe have a bowl of ice cream or talk to someone who maybe not always is the most hopeful person, my system and myself detected as aberrant mm. and they were gone. And one of the things they don't share with you about change is how many people go when you change mm -hmm. right if you smoke you've got friends who smoke if you drink you've got friends who drink if you overeat you've got friends who overeat if you binge watch tv you've got friends who binge you know, it all so the more habits you change the more lonely you get so true and yeah and i was so not ready for that no one warned me i was dealing with a lot of body dysmorphia i couldn't believe i was even my body when i would look in the mirror i'd have to look at other people's genes to see the size and go wait a minute i'm four sizes smaller than that guy that guy's really tiny mm -hmm. and i'd look in the mirror and i'd have all these kind of cognitive alerts that you know that's not you but i knew it was it was really really hard um slowly but surely between you know 2015 2016 i started saying okay i need to change some of these feedback loops to remove the shame from them to remove the game of gamification uh component because what i found was the gamification component was really kind of a shameification component because if i let it play long enough i used it against mm. myself suddenly i was a bad person and the feedback loop started working backward all right, not enough steps one day, no problem. Not enough step three days, why bother? Mm -hmm. So I had to start using the information through a different time lens. So sometimes I'd look at only weeks or months at a time. Sometimes I would focus on one area at a time, such as like one, that was about the same time I learned to meditate. So if I wasn't exercising, did my meditation time compensate for the hours in the day uh, that I would have been moving? Um, and this was profound in a way that I didn't experience because it started kind of putting salve over the, I wouldn't want to say loneliness, but over the dysmorphia I had with myself and just kind of gently allowing me to be okay with not being okay. Mm -hmm. Very Buddhist one-on-one. Mm. Um, but it also allowed me to like have this relationship with technology that was otherworldly because suddenly, you know, I just started renaming my devices, my laptop, my computer, my phone, my watch. They all had names like kindness, move slow. Everything is fine. 
So whenever I would connect to something, I'd see a name. Instead of Chris's laptop, I'd see you were loved. (laughs) And it was this ridiculous spiritual feedback loop that started developing out of this in, in 16 and 17, which really led me to start to understand that, wait a minute, for all the benefit technology had done to me, I had demonized it. In a, in a way that it had left me alone. And what I needed to do was just become okay with myself. Like, you know, all the health in the world doesn't make you okay with yourself. So slowly over time, that kind of took hold. I released the book. I've done, you know, I just got done teaching a class up at Dartmouth uh, for doctors. A lot of times doctors now have unresponsive patients who have phones and they just don't even know where to look on the phone for behavior. Mm-hmm. Like how... How have you spent the last two weeks? Or you hand me a phone, I can tell Mm -hmm. you. Um, I can tell you just by looking at a home screen, just the apps Mm -hmm. that you have on your home screen are often a real good indicator of what's important to you. So, you know, for me, this this journey has become personal, but now I feel it's really important that someone who's been through it, someone, you know, we've sent a monkey into cyberspace named Chris Dancy. you know, did it kill him? No. What do we need to do? What do we need to talk about? What are the important things since we're all becoming people with 700 systems monitoring them? I mean, I'd say a lot more for most people. They just don't even think about it because they can't even comprehend it. How do we function in a world that devalues social interaction and overvalues self-sufficiency? Because it's going to happen to everyone. I believe it is happening to everyone. Well, that's a, an inspirational story, and I, I'm so appreciative that you spent the time to give us the detail. And, and I know uh, we talked off mic, and I, and I just to let the listeners know, this is a, a essentially a, a, a snapshot of what you'll get when you come to the conference and hear Chris speak. So it's a powerful story. It's got a great ending, and um, let's just leave the ending for, for folks to come listen to in person. Uh, I'm gonna switch uh, gears for a minute. And based on, I have a few questions for you, just based on your experience with with all of this, and it's clear how, just how deeply you've thought about it all. So I know there's a lot of insight in there. Uh, You know, as the technology continues to evolve and the internet of things is driving the integration of smart technologies into a wide range of consumer products, I think we agree that more people will start collecting more and more of their personal data. Do you have any advice for those individuals on how to connect and how to avoid that uh, terrible state that you uh, just uh, uh, shared with us that you got into? What can people do ahead of time so they don't get in that trough of despair? Oh, goodness. Uh, Well, I see a lot of people who are connected or starting with being connected. And when I say being connected, I mean being an active participant and their connections, because a lot we're all connected. Um, and one of the things that's a real demotivator for me, and it's one of the first struggles people have, I'd say, is this this need for it to be perfect. Mm. While my watch says I had this many steps, but my phone says this. Yeah. Uh, my wife says I did that, but my email says I did this. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I think the first rule of cyborgism <laughs> one hundred and one <laughs> is, you know, you're not a good cyborg. Uh, if you're looking for precision. Yeah, so true, uh, a so lot true. of remaining your re- remaining human would be being okay with the ambiguity of uncertainty. Or just taking it as trending data and not looking so much at the exactly. details. Yeah. Exactly, right? It, it, there's rain on your face long before you feel it. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. 
I think the second thing that I see people struggle with nowadays, uh, and your question was specific about people who are just starting, so hopefully this isn't people who are too far in, but the second thing I see that really disparaging for me to think about is people get obsessed with data loss. Mm-hmm. I lost this. Oh, I had this. My watch isn't charged, so I can't go for a run. <laughs> um, right? So true. And again, I think it's a powerful thing if data is motivating you to change your life. But at that point, it's not motivating you. It's controlling yeah. you. Yeah. So it's, it's a, it, there's really a series of uh, warning signs here is what you're pointing out. I, I love that. Yeah. You know, be aware when you become the device. Yeah. And when you're worried about the device's charge more than your sleep, you've become the device. You know, there's, it's interesting, too, because I, I actually have had a number of these experiences myself. I'm, I'm going to come out a little bit here. But, <laughs> come but, out of uh, your yeah, really. But, but I, what I've realized, and again, part of what I think makes these tools effective is when we have something, we, we've referred to it as a sentinel effect. For instance, we believe that and we've, we have evidence to support it, it's not just a belief, that if your doctor, say, puts you on a blood pressure monitoring program and, and you care what your doctor thinks, you will be more adherent to your whole regimen because you don't want to disappoint the person that's looking at those data. And I had to get over the fact that no one looks at the data but me, so if I don't wear the watch, I can still go out and even though I don't get credit for my steps, it's okay. It's, it's, I, I totally get what you're saying about that. It's fascinating. In meditation really is kind of one of those tools, you know, and I feel like everyone's kind of pushing meditation on people. But I think what meditation at its, at its core really helps people do is even if you don't feel comfortable or you feel like you're wasting your time, you will learn to be okay with not being okay. Yeah. Yeah. You will learn to be okay with wasting your time mm-hmm. um, because I think it's that journey to kind of, you know, critical awareness mm-hmm. where suddenly it's not this kind of binary pathology of am I well or not. Maybe maybe we don't want to do binge watching, but it's okay to watch one show, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, you know, if you want to binge watch, I mean, again, I think it's all about balance. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of cliche. And the third thing, if you know, kind of my three rules to Cyborg 101 is never, ever see other humans as an impediment to your evolution. It's very easy nowadays to use apps to order ahead and skip a line Mm -hmm. or have a car with a stranger show up and drive you someplace that you don't know and expect them to keep quiet so you can focus. (laughs) But but what we're slowly doing is replacing all human connectivity under this cult of efficiency. Mm -hmm. And this is not about being on social media. This is not about all these things. It's about the idea of when you use technology to remove steps, make sure there aren't people in those steps. Yeah, yeah. Because your greatest teacher is not the Fitbit. Yeah. It's the person you're walking with. Yeah, yeah, amen to that. So, you know, following on that, that's a wonderful uh, series of do's and don'ts for for folks that are just starting out. How about on the other side, for people developing these technologies, what advice do you have for them? No shamification. (laughs) Gamification is, I know it's a big buzzword, I know people love it, and I think there's a lot to kind of the, the... the feedback loops that gamification can engender. Mm -hmm. But I truly believe that 
we don't anticipate how the information systems we design for populations could be weaponized. We don't think about how they'll be screenshotted either to use against someone else, a boss, a, a peer, or a family member. And we certainly don't think about how people will use them against themselves. So we've really got to slow down this process of designing things for behavior change because you can get behavior change just by you know, yelling at someone. You don't even need to design a uh, piece of technology, right? Mm -hmm. But we need to, st I think, stop harming people. The second thing is we need to look at technology through almost a contextual window. So is someone in a good spot for the advice that you might serve to them right now? And a lot of times this requires a massive amount of data, but we need to at least consider it. For example, you don't want to send someone updates or messages while they're driving. Mm -hmm. You don't want to remind someone to do something once they're doing it, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? That only creates a level of distrust within mm -hmm. the technology that we're creating for people oh. nowadays. And I'd say the final thing is, always, always overestimate your users. They're smarter than you think they are. We need to stop letting designers tell us that they're dumb and we need to create this happy path and all these other things. And we need to focus on, like, no, the people who are using this, If we need to focus on the ones who wanna use it and use it well. Uh, I think too often I see just systems go awry because we try to dumb things down so much. And I'll tell you one thing right now, people are much savvier than we think they are. Mm. If they see something dumbed down, they know they're being game. Yeah, yeah, right? very good insights. Uh, it, it's not, not hard, so uh, I hope they're not too far off the beaten path. I know when I've done this at higher ed and, and other places over the past two years, it's been wildly successful when we overestimate uh, uh, users' abilities to understand what we're involving them in. Yeah, yeah. So the first, the first of the three uh, reminded me. I, I was envisioning a, a future episode of Black Mirror. So maybe there's a future episode of Black Mirror in your uh, in your media outreach. Who knows? Um, Tell, tell. I love Black Mirror. The problem is Black Mirror has almost become normal. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's too it's, it's too like, close it's for comfort. Even, yeah. 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 It's like it's like buying a ranch in Uncanny Valley. It's like okay, we all live there. <laughs> so, a couple things to close up. This has been amazingly fun, and uh, you can tell we're we're um, we're of like mind. So it's it's fun uh, bantering with you, and and I know our audience is going to get a charge out of out of uh, you educating them about your journey. Uh, so two two things to wrap up, I guess. What, what really it's really one, which is give us a sense of of uh, what you think the future will hold in this industry. Are we going to be able to get to that point? Uh, off mic, you talked about uh, techno optimism. Are we going to be able to get everyone to that point? Do you think what what's in the future? Yeah, well, I think we will get there. I mean, uh, I'm always kind of strangely about 18 months ahead of the wave. Um, but the darkest parts of kind of the, the discontent people are feeling are behind us. I mean, I do see things shifting uh, in, in the populations. Um, but if we look forward, I think there are a couple things we need to be aware of, trends that maybe we don't understand and we don't see that I see clearly. Um, and the first one is, it's very obvious to me that the idea of having screens is a thing of the past. I, I don't think we're walking around with phones or anything that resembles a phone uh, by 2030. It just is not happening. And if we do have them, we're not using them at the levels we're using them now. Mm -hmm. If we were to be really transparent and honest about how people receive their information, 
they're receiving in very small uh, segments. And it's starting to come more through haptics, mm-hmm. tones. We're seeing a lot more voice control technology, technology you just talk to. And this is both exciting for people who feel like the world is staring at their screen, but I feel it's much more dystopian than the world staring at their screen. The inherent power of looking at an interface is the ability to still consider choice. Mm-hmm. Google anything, you have a page full of choices. Now, we literally will go for the first one every time. <laughs> That's why there's a button on the first page of Google that says, I feel lucky, it saves you a step, right? But it's still the illusion of choice. Now, if you get in your car and you ask your phone to drive you someplace, she's not going to offer you a lot of options. Um, And there's not a whole lot you can do because the choice has been limited because of the fact you're driving. Young people today, I see them all the time interacting with AI speakers and whatnot. And whatever the answer is, they take, as my mother would say, as gospel. (laughs) And I think this idea that we'd rather have the wrong answer now than the right answer in a second upon some contemplation is becoming more pervasive. And this comes from having choice made for us. It's choice of who you follow online, to choice of who you respond to when you connect. Um, and this now that systems, even Gmail is telling you like, hey, you haven't responded to this email like in a week, would you like to respond to it now? As <laughs> machines start to help you make these decisions, I think we're gonna have more and more problems with people. So that's the first big thing, no screens, lack of choice. And the other thing, I think there's really only two that I wanna focus on for your audience, is this idea that we are inherently not as connected as we are. I believe that we can empirically demonstrate now that people are acting more as a single organism, massive amounts of people, than we've ever been able to uh, uh, maybe articulate in the past. And what I mean by that is, you know, everything from trending topics to just kind of these erroneous self-erupting uh, things that happen online, like where did that come from? And I think we are not really tapping into the power of what we collectively could do through the right feedback loops. Because let's be honest, a smart city is just a big Skinner box for population health. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? I like that so, soundbite. Yeah. Who could harness that and who should harness that mm-hmm. so uh that's kind of it but again i've really enjoyed this time too your energy is absolutely infectious and uh, i can feel your interest in the topic and i appreciate that what uh haven't i asked you that i should what else do you want to tell our listeners and it's okay to be plugged in it's okay to be addicted quote unquote to your phone it's okay to ignore the habits you know and things you should be doing Get okay with not feeling okay, and it will all actually become okay. I love it. Well, there you have it, folks. So uh, buy Chris's book. Uh, I'll I'll tell you the title again. Don't unplug how technology saved my life and can save yours too. Come to the Connected Health Conference, uh, October 16th through 18th, Seaport World Trade Center here in Boston, and hear him speak. Uh, And thank you so much for spending the time with us today, Chris. Oh, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Well Connected with Dr. Joe Cavita. A special thanks for me personally to Tony McMillan, our engineer, and Lynn Josephson, our senior marketing manager, for putting this series together. If you enjoyed our show and want to know more, visit our website at partners.org forward slash connected health, all one word. 
You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Connected Health. For more episodes of our series, search Partners Connected Health on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to podcasts.